0: Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Anna Toshinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with my fact this week. My fact is that while working as a publisher, the poet T.S. Eliot liked to sit his visiting authors on a whoopee cushion before offering them an exploding cigar.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow. I mean, did he do this with everybody? Yeah, I don't know if people were warned about it. I think most people assumed it wouldn't happen. He was a very serious guy, according to the writings that he released. So the idea that you would enter the office of the great poet T.S. Eliot and have a cigar explode in your face while making a loud fart seems out of place, doesn't it?
2: Do you think maybe the very grave, serious persona he had throughout his life was all an act so that he could <laughs> do this jape without people expecting it? That's a great Could have been actor. all building up to this.
0: <laughs> all the front, yeah. yeah, yeah. It wasn't just his authors who came in who he would turn these sort of practical jokes onto. He once broke up a board meeting as well by setting off a bucket full of firecrackers underneath the chairman's legs. So he was all over the
3: shop. He was a nightmare to work with. Sounds like a maniac. That sounds dangerous (laughs) as a 4th of July prank.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You'd be fired if you weren't quite senior in the company or you weren't about to become the greatest poet of the 20th century. You would be fired for that.
1: But wait a minute. Wouldn't it be quite cool if you're about to be fired? And they went, you're fired. And you went, no, you're fired, mate. And a lot of (laughs) firecrackers went (laughs) up up his ass. That would be amazing. (laughs) Stunning.
2: maybe that's what happened. And it was such an event they completely forgot they sacked him.
0: (laughs) So... T.S. Eliot, he, um, famous poet, but also uh, was actually a publisher himself. So he worked for Faber and Faber. Uh, In fact, he actually worked for it before it was Faber and Faber. He worked for it when it was Faber and Guire. Very, Do you know why? Can I just say became... very,
1: very good publishers, Faber and Faber. Um, they've got one book out this year. I think it's called "Funny You Should Ask" by the QL. Oh, here we go. Uh, here we go. <laughs> viral they are marketing. Very, very good. Very crafty. Sorry, Dan. You were saying. <laughs> but so yeah, so he
0: joined them in the 1920s, and he became a director and an editor
3: there. We're saying he was one of the great poets of the 20th century, which I guess mm. he was fine. But
1: he did he did also write cats. I mean, here's. I, th- I, th- I believe that's what we're referring to when we say... Oh, I'm whatever. sorry. Yeah.
3: <laughs> 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 he is the lyricist, credited as the lyricist on the musical Cats, even though he died 20 years before it came out, because he wrote this book, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, in 1939. And it was for his godson. It was, you know, it wasn't...
0: Yeah, yeah. That's, that's unfair to say that he wrote Cats.
3: I say he wrote Cats because, for example, he won a Tony Award for Cats in 1983, yeah. 18 years
1: after he died.
2: And they That's wheeled true. him up, didn't they, onto the stage <laughs> a very dark award
1: ceremony. And he went, surprise, I haven't been dead all this time. <laughs> <laughs> Huge stick bomb goes off at the back of the room. Chaos.
2: <laughs> I think in his defence, he said about Cats in an interview when he was asked about it, that one wants to keep one's hand in. So, you know, you just keep trying stuff out. You just keep the practice of writing, even if you're not really writing serious stuff. But he did really enjoy writing about Cats, because in this same interview, he basically said, I've thought about writing about dogs, but they don't seem to lend themselves to verse quite so well, which I can see that that's true.
1: A dog on a log. Can you? does rhyme. But I think there's more rhyming words for cats than there are for dogs. Just, I mean... I'm not a poet, as you might be able to tell, but I'm just no. A...
2: I think that's really good. He probably hadn't thought of the log thing. Frog, it's the cat, frog is as well. The actually,
3: frog. Yeah, but it's the cat in the hat, isn't it? Not the dog on the log with a frog.
2: Okay, he wasn't Doctor <laughs> Seuss. Come <Go> on,
1: <laughs> is that not what poetry is? I've never read any of his stuff.
2: I must say, um, Ezra Pound gave him his nickname, which you mentioned a minute ago, which was Possum. So it's called Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats because that was Elliot's nickname. And it's related to his serious personality. So despite all the practical jokes, he was known for being incredibly stiff. The nickname Possum came after the fact that possums are known for faking their own deaths. So the idea was that (laughs) whenever he was at a social gathering, it seemed like he was faking being dead. That's how much life he contributed to the party. (laughs)
0: Like playing Possum. Yeah, exactly. But so he liked the name Possum? Is that what you're saying?
2: He did like it, yeah. It was affectionate. And Virginia Woolf said he was so buttoned up, he wore a four-piece suit. And so he liked the name Possum. He kind of embraced this. And it was based
3: on... That's the joke. I understand. (laughs) I was just trying to work out. Because I... I wanted to know if there was a bit of a three-piece suit I was missing all these years.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, there's there's a bit of of your sense of humour you've been missing all these years, it turns out.
0: (laughs) But that's interesting, because he did have a bit of a lack of a sense of humour about his names generally. For example, T.S. Elliot. Why is the S in there? Why not T. Elliot? Do you guys know?
1: Well, all I know really about T.S. Elliot before researching this is that his name is an anagram of toilets. So is it? There you go. Is that it?
0: If you if you take the S out, it's toilet, backwards. And he did not want that to be the case. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Kidding. That's why he put the S in?
0: This is, a lot of people said it. I haven't read him saying it himself, but, you know, Samuel Beckett has written about it saying T. Elliot is toilet spelt backwards. Auden mentioned it, that that's what you would get. I think it was a thing that everyone had noticed. And so that's why the S was in there. Wow. Um, so we know he didn't like dogs. We know he likes cats. Do you know what other animals he didn't like? um mm. spiders i guess is the obvious one farmyard animals oh. as a as a group he famously at or rather perhaps not as famous as it should be while working at faber turned down george orwell's animal farm it was submitted oh. to them mm. and he read it and he wrote him a nice long letter saying it's brilliant. And I'm very upset that we're not going to be publishing it because it means that whoever gets to publish it will probably get to publish your subsequent work. But I just, I can't do it. It doesn't fit with us. Because he he doesn't like like farmyard animals. Oh, I'll
3: tell you another animal he didn't like, flies, because they also turned down Lord of the Flies, Faber and Faber.
2: They, Is every yep. subsequent fact in this show going to have to be linked tangentially to an animal?
1: Was it because yeah. Lord of the Flies has a character called Piggy and you get pigs in farmyards?
3: Brilliant. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yes. they—they they t- Well, they Sorry didn't we specify that. They turned it down with the notes, rubbish and dull, pointless, reject.
2: Wow. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. God. Sounds like he was quite a bad publisher. <laughs> no wonder <laughs> he had to write poems to make ends meet, turning down all these absolute Stokehold hits.
1: Unlike Faber of today, of course, who have another Stone Cold hit on their hands with Money You Should Ask, the new bug by the QILs. Available now. (laughs) Spawn.
3: I didn't know how fun T.S. Eliot was. I appreciate we've just said that he's not fun all the way through this, but I did know he really liked Groucho Marx. He idolized Groucho Marx. They had dinner once together, T.S. Eliot and Groucho Marx, but the dinner was a complete disaster because all Marx wanted to talk about was literature and all Eliot wanted to talk about was Marx Brothers
1: films. (laughs) Yeah, It's really interesting that if Groucho Marx was going to become friends with anyone, you would think it wouldn't be someone who has the big exploding cigar trick up his (laughs) Uh,
0: sleeve. Maybe that was his ultimate prey for T.S. Eliot. (laughs) I will get him one day.
2: Well, that actually makes so much sense. Sorry, because Eliot once wrote Marx a letter. So he'd written Groucho Marx a letter saying, can I have a photo of you? And uh, Marx had sent it and T.S. Eliot put this framed on his table. But then Eliot wrote another letter to Marx saying, mm, in the photo of you, you're not smoking your cigar. And it's a bit annoying because all my visitors come, look at it and say, who's that? No one recognises you without the cigar. Can you do one with a cigar? So maybe that was all part of a ploy to get that exploding cigar into his face.
1: That is interesting. It's I think it's next. interesting that they were so close because Eliot was quite anti-Semitic, wasn't he? Do you know what I mean? Uh, yes. That's, we should mention that, I think. A lot of his poems that before he became famous do have certain anti-Semitic tropes to them. And that right. it was before Second World War. And then obviously after the Second World War, people realized that, wait a minute, you can't really do this kind of thing. But he never really properly backtracked on it. So, mm. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, actually, it was quite tense. I'm not sure they did like each other that much. If you read the exchanges of letters, they're full of barbs. So there was one where when Mark sent Elliot this photo, Elliot wrote back saying, I've hung that right next to my photos of Yates and Paul Valeri, you know, in the Pride of Place. And then Groucho wrote back to him saying, that's so weird because I've just read an essay about you which named those other two pictures, but there was a conspicuous absence um, I trust this was an oversight on the part of the journalist.
3: What a weird thing to write to someone saying the article about I you didn't mention a photo
1: of me in your home. Get a grip, <laughs> mate. then Elliot's excuse was that he said, oh, well, your picture was a photo and the other pictures were drawings or paintings. So maybe the um, writer had only noticed the paintings and hadn't noticed Photographs and didn't want to talk about photographs. <laughs> good
3: excuse. Very good excuse. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely mad that in the old days you had to write to someone for a photo of them. Can we just appreciate that as a really stupid yeah. system?
2: Imagine. Imagine. How it. do you get a photo of someone now again? Yeah. Is it easier uh, now?
3: You yeah, Google you,
1: them? Google image. Cr- yeah.
2: And then oh, right click and you on. go
3: print. And then you...
1: <laughs> Yeah, but when you've got a picture of Groucho Marx on your wall with all the other people you've met, you don't know, want one that you've taken off Google Image, do you? <laughs> with Getty
0: images <laughs> over the top of it.
1: Come oh, well, on,
3: Andy. Uh, you should come and see my gallery wall. It's got a lot of <laughs> lot of lovely watermarks on it.
2: So many celebrity friends. It's Nicole Kidman's up there. Barack Obama. God, he's got around.
1: Uh, Shall we talk about his sex life? Oi. oi. Always up for that. TSLE, okay, okay, sure. Yeah. Um Go for he it. it was very difficult, I think, is is the headline there. <laughs> uh he was very awkward around women. Um he had a lot of relationships in his life and until the end they were pretty much a disaster. Um
0: yeah. oh, I was I was ready for the juicy stuff james i didn't think it was just okay he had bad relationships okay
1: i was just gonna set it up for someone else to jump in there but <laughs> we've, fine we've so... all got bad
0: relationships
1: yeah <laughs> um his his most famous relationship was with vivian and he told the wolves uh, that he couldn't imagine shaving in her presence that's how awkward the relationship was between those two people this all is the the Virginia wolves the virginia family, wolves. we should say not actual wolves <laughs> was confusing sorry i just assumed yeah he didn't course. like dogs but he loved wolves i, uh, <laughs> I thought i pro- i thought i pronounced the word wolf with the obvious double o it was uh, so obvious that there was a double o in there guys i heard the f <laughs> of
3: wolves and that's what i was but i think wolf wolves it's probably she virginia always said i'm virginia wolf <laughs> oh yeah so, so what did the wo- wolves <laughs> say about him they said oh
1: <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, he was part of that Bloomsbury group, wasn't he, with the mm. Wolves, Virginia Woolf yeah. and uh, Bertrand Russell as well, with whom his wife had an affair.
2: Wait, so what did Virginia Wolves say? What were you saying about the, what did the Wolves say? <laughs> we need to know what the Wolves at the <laughs> he door said. said.
1: He said it to the Wolves. He said, oh, I can't sorry, imagine shaving, shaving in my wife's presence. And then the Wolf said, you really need to make this house out of bricks. <laughs>
3: <laughs> he said he
1: couldn't imagine shaving in his wife's presence. yeah because he was so awkward they got married really really quickly but then they it was really obvious very very quickly that they weren't compatible one little bit
2: oh awkward. they slept in different rooms as well that's another uh-huh. well they tried to sleep in the same room on their honeymoon as is traditional and yeah. it sounds awkward as is the theme so they went on honeymoon in eastbourne and she was on her period and had an embarrassing accident when, you know, they were trying to have their honeymoon moment and they were both so incredibly embarrassed that he went and slept out on a deck chair outside the hotel for the rest oh, of the week no. and she trashed the hotel room because she was in such a frenzy of embarrassment and then she took the sheets away with her because she didn't want the hotel staff to see them but then, of course, they just called their home when they got back and said, you've stolen all of our bedding <laughs> oh, which which sort of is more embarrassing, I think. Oh, dear.
0: But they did, they did also, I think, at that point of the honeymoon the honeymoon was meant to be the debut sex fest because <laughs> they hadn't had sex as far as i could tell it seems that they got married really quickly because um he i think he told ezra pound he said i, I want to have sex and then three months later he was married to her so the he debut obviously sex,
3: fest.
1: Debut sex mm. fest
2: yeah they should rebrand honeymoon yeah.
1: <laughs> Where are you going on your um, debut sex fest? <laughs> oh, we're, we're off to stay
2: with the wolves. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Ashley, Virginia Wool- Woolf said living with Vivian, who was quite mad, living with Vivian was like having a bag of ferrets hung around your neck.
3: <laughs> she was very trouble, wasn't she? And And, you know, I think mm. she was, was she sectioned at one point when he was away and she spent the rest of her life in a hospital?
1: Yeah, so um, he went away to America, didn't he? And then his solicitor sent her a letter saying, I want a separation um, rather than him saying it. And then when he went back to London, she kind of stalked him and would go to his office and he would always sneak out of the back door so that she wouldn't see him. Uh, and then she would walk around London with a knife. It was like a rubber knife. So it's like a joke. She was like, I'm trying to find my husband with this rubber knife. Wait, did she get it from the same shop as the exploding cigars? In the- <laughs> <laughs>
3: Smithies absolutely cleaned up on the Elliot's, didn't they? Uh,
1: and then she joined the British Union of Fascists in the did late she? 30s. Oh, yeah, yes, um, that's right. and she liked to wear the uniform in public. Yeah, because when you hear about the early days of
0: her life, particularly the university years, everyone sort of talked about her as being very flamboyant. She was a great dancer. She'd always speak her mind. She smoked in public, which you wouldn't usually see women doing. She dressed like an actress. Aldous Huxley said that he really liked hanging out with her because she was vulgar. It was just, She was just so different. She would say what she thought. And then you get to this fascist period where suddenly it seems like a totally different character. In fact, the last time she ever saw Elliot was at one of his book talks where she went into the audience. She brought three books with her and she brought her dog and he signed her books for her and then went off with someone else. It's the weirdest thing. It's the last time they ever saw each other.
2: Wow. Wow. Yeah.
0: But still, you know, she she got her book signed. She got what she wanted
1: yeah she the book sign would she not have just found his signature on the internet, printed it off, and then stuck it in her <laughs> book? All right. So you've seen my autograph book too Fine.
2: <laughs> she did she tried various ways to get him back. So one of them seemed to be bringing this dog to his book. Chat, which is a bad idea. Another one was putting an advert out in the Times, the nineteen thirties. So she thought there was a a sort of a conspiracy to keep them apart by other people. And so she put an ad in the Times saying, Will T. S. Eliot please return to his home at sixty-eight Clarencegate Gardens, which he abandoned on the September the seventeenth, nineteen
1: thirty-two. Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Um, do you know Elliot himself was really secretive about his correspondence? The, there's, in fact, the whole estate has been very secretive since he died, pretty much, because um, his, his widow was called Valerie. He married a, again much later. So Peter Aykroyd was trying to write a biography of him, and he was forbidden to quote from any correspondence or unpublished work, and he was hardly allowed to quote even actual published poems of T.S. Eliot's. In this biography of the man, Eliot destroyed so much correspondence that between 1905 and 1910, there is just one postcard left by him. <laughs> That's it. That's all there is for those five years.
2: What does it say? Just Dear mom, really sunny here. Hope you're well.
3: Having a lovely debut sex fest in <laughs>
2: Eastbourne.
3: <laughs>
0: okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James.
1: Okay, my fact this week is that in 2001, an artist got lost in Los Angeles and decided to make his own sign to stop other people from getting lost in future. Not only did it remain unnoticed for more than a year, but when the city was tipped off, they found that it met all signage rules and they kept it in place for eight years. <laughs> it's
3: so charming.
1: What was the it's sign awesome. saying? It said five. Ah.
3: <laughs> and the Which
1: word north five, as five well. north. Yeah. So this was a sign to get off a highway and get onto another highway. And basically the signpost to tell you where to go was really close to the ramp. And really there should have been one a lot further back. So whenever anyone drove down the 110 and wanted to get onto the five, they would only realize at the last second that they needed to be in a certain lane and they would kind of swerve in front of the cars. Mm. And he was like, well, it's just really dangerous. So I'm going to put a five, maybe a mile further back or a half mile further back. Uh, And he put it there and he did it in broad daylight. He just one day, he just got a load of ladders and just went up there and did it. And it was there. And no one noticed. And I think he tipped them off in the end. This uh, artist named <laughs> Richard Ancrom. He tipped off the city in the end and they just kept it there. And then they decided we're making some new signs now and we're going to have to take this down. But actually they put a new five where his five was. So they took his down mm. and they put a new one up there. So they kind of tacitly admitted that he was right, that it should have been there. He
0: planned it for ages as well like he he didn't just go in broad daylight just dressed as he was he he absolutely planned the whole thing so he had his hair cut I'm not sure why, but he had his haircut. He bought some work clothes. He had a hard hat. He got an orange vest. He even made...
2: The haircut must have been to fit inside the hard hat, maybe. (laughs) Possibly. Yeah, he had a a
1: Mohican before that, didn't he?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And um, he had his truck. He did a thing where, as well as making the signage for the actual sign itself, he made signage for the side of his truck to match the Caltrans, which is California transports, the logos and so on, to make it look like he was part of them. So it was properly planned.
2: And he's an artist, isn't he? And you can tell because he clearly doesn't have a nine-to-five job.
1: (laughs) He um, called his piece Guerrilla Public Service. And I should just say that I got this fact from a book called The 99% Invisible City, A Field Guide to the Hidden World of Everyday Design by Roman Mars. And it's a really awesome book based on the 99% Invisible podcast. Wow. And it's full of loads of awesome stuff about the streets. And you, you know, if you read it, then you walk down the street and you go, oh, you know why that's there. You know why that's there. You know why that's there. It's a really good book. Oh, great. He's amazing, Roman Mars. We yeah. just, we
2: just 99% Invisible did not need any extra advertising from us. Yay. <laughs> okay, not good. Not compared just, with the new book.
3: Funny you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool how people keep doing this around the place. And it's kind of all these micro-Banksies, but with particular mm. bugbears. So there is a thing currently going on in Sheffield where people are changing noughts on street signs into queues. And no one really knows why they're doing this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there is a theory that it's to do with Q non- I was, was wondering the, if it might be that. <laughs> which is the insane conspiracy that the USA is run by satan-worshipping child-sacrificing paedophiles, but I don't know why in Sheffield people will be changing the street signs <laughs>
2: like,
3: this will get the word out um, so it may be nothing to do with that
2: um, one of the road based public service that people perform, which I think is very cool, is in the Czech Republic, where a group of Czech nerds basically just saved the government $18 million. What? And they did this because there's this guy called Tomas Vondracek, and he is a businessman, he runs some tech businesses, and he found out that the country was about to pay $18 million to switch their road toll system to a digital system. And as someone who knows about coding and programming and stuff, he was really pissed off. He put a post on LinkedIn saying, this is classic bureaucracy gone mad. This task is simple enough for a group of programmers to do over a weekend. And he just put that on LinkedIn and the prime minister got in touch and was like, well, is that true? And would you mind doing it? And so he was like, all right, I'll ask some friends. And he signed up 150 of his programmer friends. And over 48 hours, they got together and redesigned the whole Czech road system And they got, like, meals brought to them by members of the public and saved the country.
1: Um, Speaking (laughs) of European road stuff and road signs, uh, the big story of this year, uh, as we all know, was the town of Fucking, uh, Mm. which is in... Where is the town of Austria? Austria. In Austria, Austria, yeah. And they are sick and tired of all the... Fucking tourists coming over (laughs) and stealing their road signs, right? They really. They're fucking
3: road signs. They're fucking
1: road signs. So they decided that they were going to change their name to Fugging. (laughs) <laughs> um, and they voted on it and this has happened and the town of fucking is now called the town of fucking uh, but it hasn't stopped the vandalism because there's been a whole load of more vandalism of people changing the signs back to fucking <laughs> <So, laughs> fucking is
3: is objectively a funny sounding word as yeah. well and it's quite close to the original they should have changed it to Ghent or something
1: they can't change it to Ghent there's already well, a Ghent well, right, Oh, yeah,
3: would yeah something nice Vienna. Like oh. Vienna yeah exactly. Exactly, Vienna. Thank you. (laughs) Um,
2: In 2017, in China, in the province of Jiangsu, a man was arrested for repainting road signs in order to make his commute easier. He was really annoyed being stuck in traffic in a lane on the motorway and he was caught on CCTV painting big white paint arrows to redirect all the cars in his lane into the lane next to it to stop (laughs) the traffic. That
3: is brilliant. Uh.
2: (laughs) But as if if he would get out, paint it, get back in, and then all the cars would go,
0: whoa!
3: (laughs) I couldn't work out for a long... When you started saying this, I couldn't work out how you would do road signs to make your commute easier because i thought he was putting up directions for himself like this way derek or whatever
1: <laughs> Which i would love to do do you know that's a thing that exists in los angeles this is another really? thing i read in that book that? so if you live in los angeles you would know about this but i'd never heard of it before there are these road signs rectangular yellow road signs that just turn up every now and then and they tend to be a black arrow with some letters above it and some letters below, and the letters below are kind of the inverse mirror image of the ones above. And what these are is their directions to movie sets or to TV show filming locations. And when you're in L.A. and you're filming in some kind of parking lot somewhere, you'll put these signs up. So all the techies will know where to go. All the actors will know where to go. Stuff like this. Uh, And obviously the people in L.A. know what this is. But if you're a tourist and you're kind of looking for celebrities and stuff, you just wouldn't know. You just see this sign and you think, well, it's just nonsense. Also, it doesn't Um, say Batman or whatever. No, but what they do is they tend to put words that the people in the know would know what it is. But the people who don't know what it is wouldn't know what it was. For instance, it would say Magnus Rex this way, Magnus Rex this way. And that was the Batman reboot, The Dark Knight Rises. So if you saw those signs, you would know to go to The Dark Knight Rises. There were signs for Rasputin, so you would think, oh, they're just doing some low budget Russian movie, but actually it was for Iron Man two.
3: But that's a, that's got a Russian baddie in it. So Does it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Does that's it so that's a very it's... tricky clue. Yeah. Iron Could Curtain be... Man brilliant isn't it yeah i think that's what they actually tried calling it yeah
0: <laughs> well in ancient rome they used to have names on road signs didn't they i think i read this that yeah you used to have if you had a road sign whoever built the road would have their name on it so you could admire the work of this particular person and then it would have the name as well of the person who last repaired it so a sort of update on
3: who to thank for oh, the so smoothness of the like, road like these toilets were last checked by <laughs> yes signs that you get in <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so this is kind of about you know street art (gasps) and artists mucking around with things um so i just thought i'd try and find out a little bit about banksy and i'm here to tell you who he is no i don't know that but there was a large theory that did the rounds that it's neil buchanan from (laughs) art attack if you remember that from your childhood because he's very used to large outdoor multimedia installations you know there's lots of good circumstantial evidence it got so bad this year that he had to put at the top of his website an announcement saying neil buchanan is not banksy we have been inundated with inquiries over the weekend This website does not have the infrastructure to answer all these inquiries individually. (laughs) But we can confirm there is no truth in the rumour
1: whatsoever.
2: (laughs) Exactly what Banksy would say.
1: (laughs) It's Neil. So um, the Museum of Modern Art in New York has had a few of these over the years. Um, There was a guy called Harvey Stromberg, who in 1971 decided he wanted an exhibition in MoMA but obviously they wouldn't let him because he wasn't very famous. So what he did was he went in every day and he would take photos of a light socket or of a tile on the floor, or of a brick on the wall, he would go home, he would print it out on his printer, and then he would go in and stick it over the exact place where he'd taken the photo (laughs) from. (laughs) So, like, a load of them they never found them for years and years and years. Whenever he put one on the floor, they would find it on the same day because they had those kind of buffing machines that would go around Uh, and clean the floor, mm -hmm. and they would find them. But there were some that were just over a brick on the wall, which they didn't find for decades. I'm going to start so doing that funny.
2: in my house to broken bits of wallpaper <laughs> and, you know, rusting bath handles. Just take a photo of a nice bit of wallpaper, stick it over. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you guys read about the grammar vigilantes? No. Uh, these, so these are people who go around correcting signposts They seem to happen in various countries. In Bristol, uh, Bristol has the UK's leading grammar vigilante, and he specialises in apostrophes. He began in 2003 when he saw a council sign which said open Mondays to Fridays, but with apostrophes in both of those words, which obviously is a painful experience. And so he invented something called the apostrophizer, which is an eight-foot-long tool which basically has an apostrophe <laughs> stamp on the end so that he can reach the really high signs and uh-huh. insert the apostrophe and he doesn't like to do damage so he built his own specially made step ladder so it didn't have to be lent up against shops What? Well, how
3: much um, damage is he doing with a, a normal step ladder <laughs> you're using the step ladder wrong if you, every time you take it <laughs> away from the building bricks fall out of it and... <laughs> he's
0: not a step ladder pro um, I've got a couple of things just on signs, okay. general signs. Mm-hmm. So firstly, I found it quite amazing that signs played quite an important role during World War Two in the UK, in that there was a message that went round to a lot of people to remove the signs so that if any Germans were coming over, they'd be confused and have no idea where to go. Mm. So people were encouraged just to take them down and people would arrive, not know where they're going. But on the flip side, there was also a movement by Hitler to change signs around (laughs) so you would send people to the... Apparently, that's a thing that was attempted. I don't know how successful it was. (laughs) So it must have just been very confusing driving around in World War II.
1: Sounds like your source for this is Dad's Army. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing if if you are hitler and you've got
3: spies on the ground during the second world war i would definitely want to know about troop movements and the state of the country's defence is more than misdirecting people to their local <laughs> church or whatever the signs are for.
2: Getting a commuter lost on his way home for tea. <laughs> well, this is why they lost the war, Andy. <laughs> they definitely, It was definitely a sign of resistance in Norway when the fascists took over Norway. A very subtle sign of resistance was apparently you often gave Nazis incorrect directions when they asked the way for somewhere. That was a signal that you were on the good guy's side
3: and they can't find their way back to you because they're lost no, so that's actually pretty effective yeah
1: have you ever given someone wrong directions in london for instance like a tourist and then realized afterwards that you've done it you didn't do it on purpose and then you realize you think oh fuck i've just sent them to the wrong yeah. place that is one of that. the worst feelings in the world isn't it yeah. it's
3: bad But if you suspect that they're a foreign spy, then it's actually a patriotic
2: thing to do. (laughs) They were a leftover Nazi, still (laughs) plugging away 80 years later.
3: (laughs)
0: Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that
3: is Andy. My fact is that King Edward III owned a Yeti mask. (laughs) So, riddle me that. Okay, so. I've said Yeti mask, there is a creature in English mythology, which I think is kind of close, sort of analogous to the Yeti. Basically, these were things called woodwoses and they were wild men who lived in the woods. They were big, they were not civilized, they were covered in hair. They weren't really human from all the depictions of them. They crop up a lot in medieval manuscripts and things like that. Normally kind of trying to carry women off and then a knight has to turn up and save the day and kill the Wodwos. And in Edward III's accounts, they have these wardrobe accounts which list everything that the king bought. From 1348 AD, there is Capita de Wodwos, which is the head... Of a wordwise. In fact, before it there is XIV, which is 14 of Roman numerals. I don't think that means he bought 14 of them, but I really <laughs> hope it was. Could be, yeah. Uh, it was that.
1: Yeah. So, so this is a wordwise. He um he really liked he's from the 14th century, Edward Third, right? Um he really enjoyed doing like tournaments and jousts and stuff like that. And according to one paper I read, so this is by a guy called A. Chester Beatty, who is like an American billionaire who became a historian. He reckons that Edward might have used the mask for one of his Christmas tournaments so that maybe people would be jousting with a Wodwos head on. So it might have been like, you know, like the masked singer? Where people are kind of <laughs> jousting, but they're in masks and stuff. Because there was also a capita elephantum, a capita virginum, a capita leonum, and a capita signorum. So in his wardrobe, he had an elephant head, a virgin's head, a lion's head, and a swan's head. So it- a virgin's head. That- <laughs> the virgin's chances in this fight between several <laughs> wild
2: animals. <laughs> How can you tell a virgin's head? I mean, the hymen's not on the head. What's going to give it away? Um, just on Edward's royal wardrobe, he did have pretty lavish taste. So this might be the same year as the Wurderwurzer costume, but in 1337 to 38, the clerk of his wardrobe ordered these huge amounts of like cloth and yarn and full bull's hides and loads of gold leaf and also 86 plain masks and 12 masks with long beards. And this was preparation for the Kings games, which they had every year. And along with that, they built an entire fake forest. So out of timber and paint and everything, a massive fake forest. And then they made loads of linen baboons and (laughs) they sort of (laughs) dropped all these linen baboons into the forest and they sewed the baboons into tunics with sort of pearls and hose and gloves and caps on them and everything. So they were wearing the proper gear because they're in the royal household. And then I guess they galloped through the fake forest and hunted down linen baboons.
1: Oh, my God. That sounds amazing. A lot of this was because, um, so Edward was married to Philippa of Hainault, right? And they were very young when they got married. And so there was a regency period where um, Isabella was looking after the country, who was Edward's mother, right? Isabella. So Isabella kept Philippa and Edward in real punery, like she wouldn't give them much money to do anything. They, they kind of had to live their life almost not as normal people, but as normal rich people. <laughs> but then when they became king and queen proper, they just really went for it. And Philippa of Hainault just spent so much money on all these incredibly lavish clothes and jewels. And by 1360, um, they owed about £16,000 to various different clothing embroiderers and tailors and furriers. And that's a couple of million pounds in today's terms that they owed to these people. And I was reading about like one robe that she had, which required 952 ventures. And I didn't know what a ventra was. Apparently, it's the fur that you get from the belly of a red squirrel. So they had oh, to get boy. 952 squirrels to, for this one robe. It's like, whoa. Oh,
2: Are there, yeah. Is the whole blaming the grey squirrels thing, were they a scapegoat that these guys created because they actually caused <laughs> red squirrels to go <laughs> almost extinct? Maybe,
1: yeah.
3: He really went bust later on. Mm-hmm. He had, Edward Third had to pawn off the crown jewels so that he could raise money. He Did didn't he... have a, yeah. Wow. A, but he pawned off the Great Crown of England to
1: Simon de Mirabello.
3: Um,
1: wow. Um, just one thing that he did own, um, which is quite similar to something that Dan owns, is he had a Yeti mug. Um, <laughs> in, as no. much, in as much as he had a silver cup that was decorated with Woda um, so if we're saying that there those are yetis, go. then um, he had he had a yeti mug. Yes.
3: I think Dan will... Pro- Dan, you've been keeping a very polite diplomatic silence about whether they're yetis or not. I'm pretty sure Dan thinks they're not yetis. They absolutely aren't
0: Yetis. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a completely different species. No question,
3: completely different species.
0: Um, before before we get into uh, me absolutely ripping Andy <laughs> over that, um, <laughs> just sticking on Edward the Third for a second. He's an interesting character that I hadn't heard of him as a king. Have to say, again, I'm not British, so he's he's very far back.
2: But you've heard of you know Edward the the fifth and sixth. Presumably you knew that a third must have happened before that. I've,
0: yeah, I've got all the other in the trilogy of Edwards. <laughs> the, uh, but I, I've not seen that one, unfortunately. Yeah. No, it um, went downhill, actually. Yeah, so it's interesting in that all of us are probably related to him. He's one of those guys where they've done a few reports where they say there's a 99% chance that if you are of British origin, if you were born and your family was through this period, you are directly related to him. So all of us are his great, 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 great grandchildren. But also, he created something that still goes on today, which is also connected to clothing, which is the chivalry, Knights of the Garter. Mm. And... The garter itself is literally a garter which you would wear. There's a story that he was at some dance and he was dancing with the Countess of Salisbury and the garter... And this this is one of the stories, many stories, but the story is, is that the garter slipped down her leg And everyone started laughing, but he got very furious and he yelled, shame on him who thinks ill of it about the situation. And that is the motto of the Knights of the Garter, shame on him who thinks ill of it. And that is a garter that became the code for these knights, which is a thing still going on today. In fact, there's over a thousand Knights of the Garter now, the thousandth of which was Prince William, which is
1: a very convenient number to land on. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Who had to fill in those last 20? Was it those 20 folks
1: wandering past? Do you think that they rushed through a load to get to 1000 or do you think a load of people weren't allowed to become for, like, 30 years they weren't allowed to do it? Yeah, interestingly, it's the two
0: princes. It's Andrew and Edward, and then it's meant to be William next, but they just slipped in an MP in between, so there's one guy just taking up 999. Virginia bottomly at 999. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Woodwoses. Andy, you fucking idiot. Um,
3: They are Yetis, Dan. They're the British Yeti. Wow. And this is okay. This is the real thing. I think they may have a a kind of relationship with real history. In that, obviously, they're mythical. These word are. They, you know, they're not. They didn't exist. But after the Norman Conquest, you did for for many years. You got gangs of wild men living savage in the woods, the swamps. They were social outcasts. They were criminalized. So that is a possible origin point for this story, you know, sort of mm. wild man living in the woods. There are lots of medieval churches which have woadwosers in their stones. And mm. so there's this weird kind of relationship between local myth and, you know, newer Christian traditions, that kind of well, thing. Well, yeah. even, even great scientific
0: minds actually for a while thought that these were real thi- And they didn't think it was a separate species. They thought it was a, someone, as you say, went wild, became wild, had children that were wild, and they grew up as a sort of subspecies that knew nothing but the wild. In fact, the person who gave us the name Homo sapiens, he had Linnaeus, that was Linnaeus who did that, and one of the categories was Homo ferus, which was these wild people, and he was convinced, and that's been dropped since. We don't talk about his Homo ferus group. Um, There's a few, but he believed that there were wolf boys or feral children um, that were abandoned by lost parents and subsequently raised by wolves. That's the actual wolves, not Virginia wolves family. And (laughs) And there's lots of legends like Romulus in Rome and Remus who s- were suckled by a she-wolf.
2: And they, there was a belief that they sort of naturally grew hair, I think, in the forest to protect themselves because they were living the elements, wasn't there?
0: Mm. That's right. I quite like that Romulus and Remus were suckled by a she-wolf because Edward III, who wore a woed woose, was suckled by a she-wolf as well.
3: No, he wasn't.
0: Was he? Yeah. That's what his mother was known as, the she-wolf.
3: Oh, very sad. Really? Th- Fair that lever switcheroo. These
2: tenuous links to animal <laughs> themes. Oh,
1: that was a great one, Dan. Don't let them T- don't let them T- about <laughs> that.
3: T. S. Eliot would have rejected that for publication. Oh my god.
1: <laughs> you know, um, woadwolves art uh, and wild men and stuff like that are in one very famous historical poem. Seeing as we were talking about T. S. Eliot, Ooh. and that is the 14th century romance poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And according to that poem, the Wodwoses in the UK, they live on the Wirral Peninsula, which is just outside Liverpool. (laughs) (laughs) According to this poem, in the wilderness of Wirral dwelt there but few that God or man with good heart loved. And it's basically yeah. this was such a wild west, wooded, crazy area that this is where you would get these wild men living.
2: If the it's a little known fact that if the Beatles didn't shave meticulously every day, <laughs> they would be covered in hair from head to toe. <laughs> that, the other stuff that Gawain fights in Gawain and the Green Knight is quite odd. So the Green Knight himself is a kind of woadowoser in the like Tolkien does a translation where he translates the Green Knight as being a woadowoser, and they were often. Green men as well, were another mythical mm. wild mm. man. Um but Gawain also fights in that chivalric myth, um, worms, which are dragons. Mm. Dragons were called uh, worms. Really? I think that's uh. that's a huge promotion we've given dragons that they were worms. <laughs> he fought worms, wolves, and word was and the reason I'm saying it weirdly is because every time it's spelled, it's spelled differently. So you can say word a waza wada wood award waza any way you like. It is weird, um, isn't it? Yeah.
1: And one of the spelling is um water house which is oh, where yeah. P.G. Woodhouse gets his name. So that cool. is amazing, oh, isn't it? Yeah. P.G.
3: Woodhouse is descended from yetis. Wow. <laughs> Don't you agree with that? I do, but for different theories. Um... <laughs> um you guys know, you? do you remember John Falstaff? We've mentioned him before. Yes. Friend of the podcast. Yeah, uh-huh. He was maybe the inspiration for Falstaff? In he was,
1: and he was there at the um, at Battle of Agincourt and stuff. Yeah, and he was there when right. Joan of Arc came into Paris and all that kind of stuff.
3: Yeah, he had a big old tapestry with uh, woe woes in his mm-hmm. hall. Yeah. Uh, so they
1: were big. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you you also said they appear quite a lot in architecture and cathedrals and stuff. One example of where Wodewers, or in fact, Green Men, the sort of descendant of Wodewers, uh, appears, is Norwich Cathedral. And that is because they were very common in roof bosses which we know a lot about because they featured heavily in our last year's book, Book of the Year 2019. And that's why, if you remember, in Norwich Cathedral, they erected a helter-skelter that you could climb oh, up last yeah. year so you could get a better view of the roof bosses. And yes. I mentioned it because I love that reverend who was the guy who decided to put the slide in, and he was inspired when he visited the Sistine Chapel. And the thing he thought as he looked over <laughs> the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel... Was that Norwich Cathedral's decorations were every bit as wonderful, but just too high up to be appreciated? <laughs> yes.
3: They, Sistine Chapel, they have ta- they recently, because it's such a pain to look up constantly, you get a kind of crick in your neck if you're in there and you're always having to look, you know, crane your neck up. So they, I think, have just installed swings so that um, you on. get a really good view. know
1: <laughs> Oh, I was with you for so much of that. <laughs>
0: okay it's time for our final fact of the show and that is
2: n. my fact this week is that there's a single termite home in brazil that's the same size as great britain <laughs> wow this is astonishing it's a big home it's not i don't mean a say, home uh, yeah, I'm, yeah i'm gonna preempt I gonna you say, james okay <laughs> right i want mean, to i want to say it wanna... no stop it shut your mouth it's not a single termite It's a single home, but it is more than one termite living there.
1: Uh Uh, Since the kids have left, we're rattling around the place. It's the size of Great Britain, and I'm the size of a grain of rice. The,
2: The bedroom tax has taken its toll on these termites. This is just incredible. It was only confirmed a couple of years ago, only sort of discovered a couple of years ago when... They've been clearing this pasture in Brazil for agriculture and stuff for 20 or 30 years. And people started noticing there were a lot of mounds around. And eventually, 2018, someone decided to do a proper study of it and survey of it. They realized there are 200 million termite mounds. These piles of excavated termite dirt spread across something the size of Great Britain. Um, so all across Brazil, and no one had really noticed before. As in the people who lived there knew that there were these termite mounds kind of yeah. scattered about. It yeah.
1: wasn't that a scientist came along and he went, what are these massive mounds doing? And they went, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> It wasn't quite that. Uh, because their termite mines are quite solid, they would just build their houses around them, wouldn't they? They would, you know, they'd yeah. be in your garden Definitely. and you'd like turn it into a barbecue or something. Or Yeah. Sit on, <laughs> on the you're having a You
2: could put a slide down it for their kids. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's amazing as well, isn't it? Because it's a single termite species that's been working on this. And the amount of, so- they've looked into the amount of soil that they've managed to excavate that sits on top of the earth. And they say that it's equivalent to 4,000 great pyramids of Giza. It's the amount that they've managed in all these years. It's amazing. Yeah. It's extraordinary. And yeah. some,
3: of them, some of them are as old as the pyramids. So all of these are at least 700 years old, give or take, a few years. And they're up to 3,800 years old. And that's just from the eleven that they've properly studied the age of so far. So some of them could be way older than that, but that is roughly the age of a lot of pyramids.
2: Yeah. yeah. No, they've said it. That that's actually the minimum estimate of their um, range, and it's like 4,000 years old is the minimum. It might be twice as old as that from what oh, they've studied amazing. so far. And like you say, it is one family, because they thought that it must be lots of different species of termites that are rivals, but they took a bunch of termites from one pile of dirt and then put them with a bunch of termites from another, and you'd expect them to always fight. And they got along like well, like family, like a happy family. And so that, and they basically proved that this is just one home, one family house. So cool.
1: Do you know how they um, found out how old they are? This no. is quite cool. What they did was they dug into the bottom of one of these piles of earth and they took out a little bit of earth. And there's a technique which is really complicated, so I won't go into it, but you can kind of fire lasers at this earth and like look at what happens to the electrons. And you work out the last time that it was exposed to sunlight. So wow. they can just work It's so clever, it's like carbon dating But for things that have not been alive And you just fire your little lasers at it And it'll tell you when the last time It was in the sun oh, That's wow. so, wow. so clever We're so clever, we're here talking about How clever these termites are, but look at us <laughs> I mean, Kicking ass When we say we, it is the scientist Because <laughs> when I say it's complicated I don't want to go into it Partly it's because I don't really understand it <laughs> <laughs>
2: We can take credit. I bet there were just two termite architects that built this whole thing, but the rest of the termites are going, God, we're impressive, aren't we? That's right, yeah. You take credit That's for your it. species.
3: But they're not even um they're not even proper mounds like other termites build. So some termites build sort of chimneys or, or ventilation things. These were just described by the scientists who worked on this project as slag piles because Uh-oh. they live underground. All it is is they're making space for their chambers underground. So they make a vertical hole to the surface and then they just chuck the soil out of those holes. And over time, that builds up into however tall these are, two metres, two and a half metres. I mean, imagine what's underground, this yeah. huge cathedral space that they've emptied out.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah, and they were first discovered by a few scientists, but one in particular, a guy called Stephen Martin, who's an entomologist at the University of Salford, and he doesn't even care about termites. <laughs> he is an expert in giant killer hornets.
2: Isn't he? The oh. things
1: that actually we should just call giant hornets these days—just big old hornets. We're not supposed to murder call them hornets. Murder hornets. We're not supposed to yeah. say that. But he's an expert in those guys, and um, he was in Brazil looking for some bees because he wanted to see how the bees were getting on in, in Brazil. And then as he was going down the road, he was like, wait a minute, what are those? What are those <laughs> things? And why are they so regular? And why are they in like a pattern? And that was when they worked out that it was all this same yeah. uh, species. Actually, it's worth saying,
0: I don't know if, if this has been mentioned, or even if it's assumed by the listener, but they're still building these mounds. Mm. This is an active house. It's not It's not dead. It's not like a fossilized, old, abandoned Great Britain, it's it's an active thing. People
3: yeah. are houses in Great Britain, sorry. <laughs> Not enough,
2: though, <laughs> Many. are they, Andy? No, no,
3: no.
2: <laughs> Um. So um, termites, are, termites are pretty incredible, and possibly the most incredible termite is the queen. So they've got a queen-based structure like bees and other species. And, and England. <laughs> and England. And much like in England, the termite queen is the only fertile member. And so she is super fertile, the termite, I mean, and she basically spends her entire life incessantly mating. So she chooses a male to mate with and then she spends the subsequent 15 to 20 sometimes years constantly shagging him and she'll make one egg every three seconds so in her lifetime she makes over a quarter of a billion Mm. eggs constantly producing them
3: is there a king termite that produces all the mating
2: there's a king termite and he's what's quite funny about them is that she's about a hundred times bigger than he is and than anyone else in the colony so he's this microscopic thing she's next to him and the reason she's so large is because she is one giant ovary And do please look on YouTube at the picture of a queen termite with eggs inside her. So she's like this big, pulsating, transparent lump that's full of eggs. And you can see the eggs bubbling and moving around inside her under her surface. And, yeah, she and she can't move. So it's awful being the queen because you're stuck. She can't fit out the door of her enclosure anymore. She can't move at all. So she depends totally on members of her colony to wash her, to feed her, to lick the right. weird sweat off her. She's just stuck. So there. Is this
3: still the termite queen we're talking about?
2: <laughs> I'm just going to leave that okay. ambiguous.
3: That's scandal. But
0: the door, the door thing, seems to be a bit of a mystery. Because if you've got a house the size of Great Britain, you'd think you could make the doors a bit bigger to fit your leader out of.
1: Such, What's going on there? Such a good point. Termites <laughs> usually have quite small doors. They have like termite-sized doors.
2: Indeed. She doesn't um,
3: want to. She doesn't want to go anywhere either. I mean, she's she can't. attached to this huge body of. Her legs are tiny compared with the breeding mass of her.
2: Yeah, if you gave her a big door, it would actually just be horrifying for her knowing she couldn't even get through it because she can't move. So. Ah,
3: so they're
0: tricking
1: her. They're basically saying, oh, you could go everywhere, but oh, the doors are too small.
2: What a <laughs> <Yeah>. shame.
1: <laughs> but so she never knows. The door thing is quite important in termites because um, a lot of them can't really defend themselves very well. They can do a little bit of squirting horrible stuff out of their anus, but there's not really much they can do if they're attacked. And so usually what they'll do is, like a few different insects, they'll come back into their door and then use their head as a block to stop anything else from coming into the door. And so basically then anything coming in will have to get past that one door head and then another doorhead would go into their place, and then that stops anyone from getting into their tunnels. And that is interesting as well, because in 2018, in Japan, they found the first all-female termite colonies, where all of the termites, usually you would have kings, and you would have lots of male soldiers and stuff like that, and male workers, but this one is all females. And the reason that they think it works is that they're males are lots of different sizes but the females are all exactly the same size and so they can have a head which will exactly fit in the door Mm -hmm. every single time and you're not sometimes going to have someone whose head's a bit too big or a bit too small Ah. and so by just having females in this colony it means that they have less chance of being attacked which makes up for the lack of genetic change that you kind of need males and females for. So it's kind Clever.
2: of interesting. Yeah. Nice. That's really cool. It's like they're they're the IKEA door blockers, you know. It's just like yes. made to very basic specifications. It's all the same. It's going to fit together. Smart nice. on. <laughs> we do take advice from termites on building these days. So they <laughs> are particularly good at ventilation which is something that we are quite bad at because the amount that ventilation costs the atmosphere and greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera, is so massive. So we're now building buildings that are inspired by their ventilation systems. There's this place in Zimbabwe, which is, was the first massive building. It's a big shopping centre called the Eastgate Centre, and office block, inspired by termite systems. And what they do is they have this system of opening and closing doors that they're constantly tending to, to make sure that air comes in the right places, moves huh. up through the termite mound so that it's heated in the right places it's cooled in the right places because it needs to be a a, one precise temperature the whole time on the inside for them to be able to survive so yeah and they make the reason that they work so well is the termite mounds catch the wind so it blows through them so so a mound is like a lung and the wind comes in to them and then is absorbed by the various bits the cells that need it and then goes out
1: if you want mm. to go into this shopping center, there's a security guard with his head blocking the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> always female. though. <laughs> um, yeah, that's amazing. And another good thing, because they're ventilated so well, they make really good ovens. So in South Africa, you'll get people where they'll take a termite mound and they'll kind of drill a little hole make the door a little bit bigger. Hopefully it's a termite mound where all the termites aren't there anymore, I hope. Uh-huh. But they'll set a little fire inside and then the air will be sucked in through the door and then go up through the top of the termite mound because wow. they're so well ventilated. Brilliant. Uh, and it means that you can wow. cook like pizza in there or, you know, <sighs> cook anything that needs a high temperature, you cook in there.
2: Do they so warn cool. the termites like a demolition order? Do they put a sign up saying in three <laughs> weeks time, this will be turned into an oven, please vacate your home? <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm just hoping that they're old ones. You don't have um, the ashes of termites on your pizza as you're taking it out of the oven, <laughs> do you?
2: Maybe it's a delicacy.
0: Well, they do. That people do eat termites, don't they? They're they're infused into muffins in certain countries. Really? So, is it? Hmm. Yeah. So it's it's possible that yeah. termite pizza is a thing. Wow. Yeah.
3: Do you know how they uh, transfer water across their mounds? So sometimes a bit of the mound gets really dry, and it needs it needs moistening, lubrication. Hmm. This is so cool. They drink half their body weight in water. They go to a dry part of the mound and then they pass it into another termite's mouth. It's basically all the they have water. It, all the water. Yeah, yeah. And there's a scientist called Jay Scott Turner who fed them fluorescent dyed water <laughs> and could see it moving from one termite to another. So basically, it's like wow. it's as if a bucket chain to put out a fire was people just you know cool. pushing the water no. into each other's mouths. It's not very COVID
1: friendly, is it?
3: It's not very COVID friendly, but it would make firefighting a much sexier profession than it already is.
2: <laughs> Is it, wait, so is it to make sure that... that... Yeah. yeah.
1: I think it would make it a much less effective profession because every time you would swallow a little bit of the water and by the time it got to the final fireman it would just be a little dribble coming out of his
2: mouth.
3: (laughs) You'd obviously hire people with enormous mouths to hold as much water as they could. So the physical profile of the firefighter might change. Yeah. I'm I'm not suggesting a change in the system. I'm sorry, I'd just like to clarify. Is this just as you see your house being burnt down,
0: why not at least have something sexy to look at (laughs) while you're watching your life get destroyed? I get it.
3: I get that.
2: Um, is this to moisten the other side then? Or is this to give a drink to the people on the other side?
3: It's to moisten the other side. So it's sort of, yeah. it's, but they then go and, you know, spit the water out on the on the actual mound itself.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. They never sleep as well. Termites don't sleep. Really? Yeah, they're just building 24 hours a day until
3: they die. Do they rest? Do they have like a, a nap or, or not even? They must have downtime, do you know I mean? like, yeah. Yeah, downtime, exactly.
1: Yeah. They might play the Xbox for a little while.
3: In fact, I think I've read that they they normally, like Dan says, they're just all, all active. But if they run out of holes to fill, they just stand around touching each other's antennae. So that might be their equivalent
2: of downtime. Mm-hmm. Well, the, uh, the queen rests a lot, rests her entire life. And then her life ends really tragically because her children lick her to death. <laughs> it's, she sort of, she dies in the same sort of tragic way that she lives she stops being useful, stops laying eggs. And so her kids like lick and lick and lick her, drawing all the fat and fluids out of her and she just disintegrates oh, away. God. Yeah. That's
0: another sexy image for you there, Andy. <laughs> 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 okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James.
2: At James Harkin. And Anna? You could email podcast podcast.qi.com.
0: Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a All of our previous episodes are up there. Do check it out. And that's it. We'll be back again next week with another episode. We will see you then. Goodbye.